All right, well, hey, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible today, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, and we're going to continue our series uh, on the book of Jonah. The ushers are waving large hand gestures. (laughs) So as you're turning there, we will be uh, taking up this morning's offering, uh, and uh, I guess that's what that means. Pastor Rod is out this week. He's in North Africa with his family celebrating the birth of a grandchild with his son and daughter-in-law who are doing ministry there. And so, Rod, if you're listening on podcast, uh, we're celebrating with you. We're praying for you. And um, uh, don't hold us responsible for anything that happens in your absence. So um, <laughs> I want to begin with a story, but, but before that, uh, a question. And so this is a time for sort of some personal inventory this morning. And the question is this, how do you typically respond when you are confronted with the consequences of your actions. How do you, in other words, some of you are like, oh, we're just jumping right in, aren't we today? Just <laughs> How do you typically respond when you're confronted with the consequences, in particular, of your own mistakes? Your own mistakes. And um, I'm a college professor uh, during the week, and uh, I was also a college student on the same campus that I currently teach at. And occasionally I have uh, occasion to think back to when I was a student and some of the foolish things that I did as a college student, which hopefully gives me a little bit more grace uh, when dealing with my own students. Um, but there was, there was one time in particular where I recall um, my roommate, myself, a bunch of other college guys, we had somehow um, gained access to a water balloon launcher. Some of you may know of these giant water balloon rubber band elastic things. I thought about doing what Rod did when he gave out all the swords and, and maybe just give out water balloon launchers and see if I didn't lose my job. Um, but we had gained access to a water balloon launcher on campus, and, and we, the problem was we didn't have any water balloons. And, and so we didn't have any water balloons to launch, but the one thing we did have was a large amount of discarded fruit from the school cafeteria, apples, oranges, whatnot. And so it had seemed like a good idea at the time for said group of college men to begin to launch fruit from one side of the campus to the other. And and in our defense, we were launching it into the pond, so no one was being harmed initially. Um, It was just sort of like a... It was like a vegan game of battleship or something. It was, uh, it was just, you know, launching it into the pond. And, and of course, as, you know, sometimes guys are wont to do, seeing, oh, you know, I could launch it further than that. I could get it way further than that. And, and so on and on it went. And I was not launching. I was holding the, the end of the water balloon launcher um, with, you know, my arm outstretched while my roommate pulled it back and launched them. And unfortunately, I am not now, nor was I then, the strongest guy in the world, um, probably the weak link on the chain in a lot of ways. And so on the very last launch, I remember him pulling it back extra far, and I remember my arm sort of giving a little bit right at the moment when he released it. And so instead of sailing up over the campus, it launched at, I, I assume, somewhere around 150 miles an hour directly into the adjacent dormitory and through an upstairs window. (laughs) And suddenly, even though we're like 21 years old, it's like second grade all over again. And every, myself included, we just run and flee the scene. Everyone except for my roommate who's left just holding the water balloon launcher 
and staring into the upstairs window. We later find that there's a, a student asleep on his bed in the upstairs window when an apple goes off like a concussion grenade and fills his room with a mixture of um, shrapnel and applesauce. And, and <laughs> he said for the rest of the year, he was picking glass out of his sock drawer. And so there were repercussions. And I remember my roommate um, <laughs> holding the water balloon launcher, just going, oh, and turning around directly toward the resident director's apartment, knocking on the door and confessing um, what, he would do, what he had done, which, to be honest, was more noble <laughs> than what the rest of us did, was to just run and just <laughs> blame it on the other guy, right? So apparently that's what I do. I run, I blame. So the question is this, how do you, uh, what do you do when you are swallowed by the consequences of your own mistakes, when you're left holding the water balloon launcher, so to speak? And, and some of us, how many of you, your first reaction is to blame. Anybody? If you're just honest, blame. Yeah. I, I brought a picture today. This is a picture of Coco the gorilla. <laughs> Bet you're wondering how this is going to tie in. Uh, Coco, <laughs> famous gorilla, um, and, and very famous because the gorilla was taught sign language by, uh, by her trainer, um, a lady by the name of Penny Patterson. And Coco developed the ability to speak uh, some sort of rudimentary American sign language. Coco was given a kitten, a kitten, several series of kittens. One of them was named Lipstick. I don't know why. Um, and uh, as the story goes, um, one night Coco got angry or bored or something. And don't worry, nothing happens to the kitten in this story. Um, <laughs> and proceeded to rip a sink out of the wall in her room. Right? And, and just, just rip the sink out of the wall, destroy the sink. And the next morning, the trainer comes in and, you know, signs to Coco, you know, what happened. And Coco's response, according to the story, is the kitten did it. <laughs> so, so apparently, the, the tendency to blame when we're faced with the consequences is not even just like a human tendency. Coco the gorilla, the kitten did it, right? Some of us, the tendency is to blame when we're faced with the consequences of our own mistakes. Some of us, the tendency is to sulk, right? I won't ask you for this one, but maybe some of you are like, yeah, I just sort of retreated and I, I kind of sulk, right? For some of us, um, the tendency is to deny, just deny, deny, deny. I didn't do it. It wasn't me, right? Um, but all of us have ways of dealing with um, the consequences of our mistakes and what to do when we're swallowed by the consequences of our mistakes. And so what we're going to see this week in our series on Jonah is hopefully a more profitable way, a more biblical way of responding when we are swallowed up by the consequences of our mistakes. And so if you've got your Bibles, Jonah chapter 2. The words will be up on the screen um, for you to read along, or you can read along on your, in your Bible or in your device. It says this in verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. 
all your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. If you were here last week, we looked at chapter one in the Jonah story. And the Jonah story um, begins, just to recap, with God calling this prophet Jonah to go and deliver a message to the enemy, to the Ninevites, and this most brutal and oppressive regime on the face of the earth. Pastor Rod said that they were essentially the terrorists of their day, the ISIS of their day. And God says to Jonah, go and deliver this message that God is going to wipe them out if they don't repent. And Jonah is a unique book because in all the, almost all the other prophetic books, the prophets are said to deliver this message. And then God says, oh, by the way, no one will listen. And the prophets are like, okay. And they go and deliver the message and no one listens. In this book, Jonah is given a message and he doesn't go and deliver the message initially. And his reason is not that he's afraid for himself, but that he's afraid that the Ninevites might actually repent. And because he knows God's heart, he's fearful that God might be merciful for them. And he doesn't want that. And so he doesn't go. Instead, he runs. And Pastor Ra last week talked about Jonah running from God and Jonah fleeing literally to the other side of the, the known world and, and Tarshish and God causing a storm to rise up on the sea, Jonah throwing himself, being thrown overboard to calm the storm and sinking into, into the depths because he didn't want to deliver this message to this people that he, that he didn't like. What's fascinating to me is what scandalized Jonah was not the possibility that God might judge, but the possibility that God might show mercy. And like that's the truly scandalizing thing about the gospel. Not that God might judge evil, right? We want judges to judge justly. The truly scandalizing thing about the gospel is that God is gracious. And so Jonah runs and Jonah sinks into the sea. And we pick up the story this week in chapter 2 with Jonah inside the fish. And I know some of you, for, for you, this story, the most difficult part of this story is the fish. And, and I brought this quote from a commentator. His name is Sinclair Ferguson, a, a guy who writes a commentary on the book of Jonah. And he says, this fish must be the most criticized fish that ever swam in the Mediterranean. One sometimes hopes that there may be provision made for the fish to speak in the new earth so that this creature may answer 
it's critics. <laughs> Which I love that, right? Some people are like, you read this story and it's all about the fish. Could, is there a fish that could swallow a human? Is it possible for a human to live inside a fish? And sometimes we get all caught up on the fish when the reality, the, the thing about the story, the point of the story is not the fish, but God, right? And if God can create the heavens and the earth, surely he can create a submarine-like fish, right? And so the point of the story is not the fish. The point of the story is not to get all hung up on the fish. Some commentators think the story is a parable. Some of them think it's literal. Uh, but, but the fish is not the point. God is the point. And if God is God, this fish presents no great challenge to his omnipotence. Amen? So Jonah is inside the fish. And it's inside the fish that he suddenly, for the first time in the, in the story almost, begins to act in a way that is um, righteous and helpful rather than just fearful or um, sort of angry uh, at, at God or, or what God might do. And so the question, the question is this, what do you do when you're faced, when you're swallowed by the consequences of your mistakes. And here's, here's what Jonah does. He turns to God rather than away from him. What do you do when you're swallowed by the consequences of your mistakes? Number one, you turn to God rather than away from him. You turn to God rather than away from him. It says this in, in verse one in the passage, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed. Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. Jonah prays to God. And in that moment, he stops running and sinking and, and blaming. And he turns to God as a source of, uh, of, of help. And, and comfort. Jonah prayed. There's a saying that says there's no atheists in foxholes. Have you heard that saying? Um, apparently, there are, there are no prayerless prophets in fish gullets either because Jonah, his first response is to, is to pray. I would have probably prayed too. There's a saying that in order to turn to God sometimes, in order to truly change, you have to hit rock bottom. But Jonah hits something far deeper than rock bottom, right? It says in the passage, he's below the roots of the mountains, all right? So apparently, deeper than rock bottom is a phrase I've just coined. I'm calling it fish bottom, right? And apparently, there's a tactic to make messages go viral on the internet. You need like a hashtag. And so if all of you would go home and tweet tonight, hashtag fish bottom, and then link to this message, um, we can change the world, right? So Jonah hits fish bottom, and he turns to God. And there's a saying I've said before, uh, you probably heard me say it before. You can tell whether or not somebody understands the gospel by what they do after they sin. You can tell if somebody understands the gospel because everybody sins, right? I'm going to write that kid's book, right? Everybody sins. Um, but you can tell whether or not somebody understands God by what they do after they sin. Uh, and if you don't understand the gospel, if you think it's about earning it, if you think it's about brownie points and sort of climbing some sort of moral ladder to heaven, the temptation is to run from God when you sin. 
um, but if you understand God, if you understand his heart, then the first thing you do is not to, to run from God, but to run to him as, as the source of comfort and salvation and, and forgiveness. It's the difference, um, we've said before, it's the difference between Peter and Judas. Because both Peter and Judas betray Christ. Both Peter and Judas deny Christ. Both Peter and Judas abandon Christ. But one of them, Judas, is filled with self-loathing and shame and fear, and he runs to the tree, and he hangs himself. The Scriptures even say that he was filled with regret. Like, he felt the weight of his sin. It wasn't that he wasn't sorry. It was that he ran away from God instead of to him. And meanwhile, Peter... While he's denied Christ, while he's abandoned Christ, while he's betrayed Christ, instead of running away from Jesus at the end of the story, he runs to him. And we have this account in the gospel of him jumping out of a boat and swimming to shore to get to Jesus, the guy that he's just betrayed. And so the first step of of being um, honest and facing the consequences of your sin, the first um, step to redemption is to realize that God is someone that we run to when we sin, not someone that we run from. As a parent, I see this when we, when we have to discipline our kids, which happens frequently. Um, and th- th- it's this interesting dynamic where you discipline your son or your daughter, um, and then after that, like they, they want, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> they want to not like, you know, punch you in the face, but, but hug you and know that you still love them, that it's okay, that you forgive them, that there's not just a cloud of shame and guilt, right? They want to run to you and not away from you. And Jonah turns to God. What's interesting is how God responds to Jonah. In verse 2, he does not do this. You stupid prophet. You bad. Jonah, let's be honest, is the worst prophet in the history of of prophets. <laughs> he, he, almost, he does almost nothing right, right? Even we'll see next week when he gets to Nineveh and delivers the message, it's this sort of half-hearted, garbled, not entirely faithful depiction of what God told him to say. And then later, he's incredibly bitter and angry at God um, because people repented. So he is a terrible prophet in many ways. But God responds like this. It says in verse 2, that God answered him. God listened to him, in verse 2, when Jonah turned to him. He doesn't respond with anger uh, or retribution. He listens. He answers. He, he forgives. Turn. Some of you maybe need to hear that today. Turn to God instead of away from him when you're confronted with your, with your sin, with your consequences to your sin. Number two, second thing that we see in the passage, what do you do when you're confronted with the consequences of sin? Secondly, be painfully honest. We need to be painfully honest about how you got here. We need to be painfully honest about how we got here. And for many of us, well, like Coco the gorilla, the tendency is to blame somebody else, right? Somebody else is at fault for how I got here. Uh, For some of us, it's to deny 
to deny that we did anything wrong. We were just a product of our circumstances, a product of our upbringing, a product of any number of factors that, if we're really honest, they do play into things, but we still have a responsibility for our choices. And we have to be painfully honest about um, that responsibility. There's a famous uh, philosopher, 20th century philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein, and about the only quote that I understand of his philosophy is this. He says, nothing is so difficult as not deceiving yourself. Amen? He says, we are masters of deception, and we not only deceive other people, we deceive ourselves when we mess up. We deceive ourselves about whether or not we did anything wrong, whether or not we have responsibility, right? And in many cases, if we're honest, we're not the only ones at fault. In many cases, there were contributing factors, there were other people, but we're talking about in this message specifically when we mess up, right? When we have have to face the consequences of our sin. And he says, nothing is so difficult as not deceiving yourself. Jonah, in this passage, is forced to, to, use, to use a phrase we use today, he's forced to own it. He's forced to own um, what he's done. And, and something I think that's been incredibly helpful uh, for many of us here at Grace, I know Rod talks about this all the time, is uh, recovery ministry. And whether that's Celebrate Recovery or Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 steps. And, and some of the 12 steps get right at this, this, this need to be honest about what got you here. Step number one, we have admitted that we are powerless over our addiction and that our lives have become unmanageable. Step number four, we have made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Man, that's frightening, is it not? Number five, we've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We've, we've taken responsibility. We've taken um, inventory. And what I've noticed about teams, if you want to translate this to the, the realm of sports, that teams that lose frequently often blame the refs, Right? It's like, well, we, we would have won this game, but the refs came in and just blew it. Or there was this fluke thing that happened. And you're like, well, I think that, that seems like it happens every week. The refs ruin it for you, right? Um, we have this, um, this ability to sort of blame others in, instead, of being, um, instead of being painfully honest, right? There's a, a preacher by the name of Andy Stanley, and he has something that he calls the principle of the path. And I'll put it up here on the screen. The principle of the path. And he says... Direction, not intention, determines destination. You may have heard that before. Direction, not intention, determines destination. And, and he uses the analogy of just traveling or going someplace. If you get done with church today and you're like, man, I'm hungry. Let's go to Owasso and eat, right? Uh, which for me, we would never make it that far. But if you did that, right, and you got on Highway 75 and you went north, you would not get to Owasso. And you could get really angry, like when you get to Dewey and you meet the fine folks of Dewey and you say, where is the restaurant in Owasso? And they would say, you got a problem. You went north. Um, and it's direction and not intention that determines destination. Right? And all of us know that. All of us know that when it comes to getting in our car and going someplace. 
But when it comes to the consequences of our actions, sometimes we forget it, right? And so I know so many college uh, students, so many maybe college uh, ladies who say, I want to meet a great guy, a Christian guy, a guy who's going to be a, a spiritual leader and who treat me well. And that's the, that's the intention, but the direction of their life is, if he's cute and he asks, I'm going, right? And that is a direction that has a destination. Every direction leads to a destination. Some people get there on purpose, and some people get there whether they like it or not. And so the second step that Jonah shows us is that we have to be painfully honest about how we got here. The direction that we're going, direction, not intention, determines destination. There's a, there's a business principle. Some of you who are in business, so you're an entrepreneur, you may have heard it, that uh, it goes like this. It can be kind of a painful one. Your system is perfectly designed to achieve the, the, the results that you are currently getting. <laughs> your system is perfectly designed to get the results that you are currently getting, right? And there's a lot of other factors that can play into that, right? Um, but the question is, like, well, what, what am I doing? Uh, what have I done? What do I need to be honest about? when it comes to facing the consequences of my actions. Be painfully honest about how you got here. Number three, number three. Don't assume that getting swallowed is the end. Do not assume that getting swallowed, being forced to face the consequences of your actions is the end. One of the things that's astonishing about the song, the poem that Jonah sings or and then sort of maybe polishes up later or however you want to conceive of it, is that even in the belly of the fish, he hasn't lost hope. Verse 4 says this, I have been banished from your sight yet. And this little three-letter word yet is the encapsulation of hope that the way things are right now inside the fish are not the way they have to be for eternity. I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. He's been forced to face the consequences of his action. He's been forced to acknowledge that there was this um, culpability in how he got to this place, but he hasn't lost Hope in the midst of the consequences. Hope can be insidious. <laughs> in some ways, it's easier to just give in to despair because you're like, well, then I can't be crushed if it doesn't work out. Um, but if there's one thing that Christianity calls us to be, it's, it calls us to be people of hope. That the way things are now is not the way that they will always um, B, there's a, one of my favorite pastors went to be with the Lord uh, just a few months ago. And he's a guy by the name of Ed Dobson. Got a picture of Ed up on the screen. I, I've talked about him before. He, he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And, and as some of you know, that's a disease that's like really close to the heart of our family because um, it's affected us. Lost my uh, brother-in-law last year, about a year ago. 
And Ed talks about how he was diagnosed with, with ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. And he says, I was diagnosed at Christmas time. I was the pastor of this big church. And he said, I laid in bed for weeks. And it was approaching, you know, the Christmas, uh, it was approaching Christmas Day. And he said, every year we had this massive celebration. It was called the Festival of Lights. And it was this big celebration of, of the incarnation of Christmas. And he said, I laid in my bed and I refused to go to the celebration. Didn't want anybody to see me. I didn't want to see anybody else. Um, I just wanted to lay down and, and be done. He says, I lost hope. And he said, my wife kept goading me to get up. Right? That's one of, the, one of the reasons God gives us wives is get up. <laughs> you need to go to the festival. And so finally he, he got up and sort of begrudgingly began to, to get ready for the festival. And he said his phone rang. And it was a guy by the name of Billy. And he says, you have to know, Billy has had the worst life of anybody I know. He was from New York. He had this thick sort of New York accent. He says he lost his wife at a young age. She, she died in his arms. He's HIV positive. He was a heroin addict for most of his life. He has hepatitis. He, he to this day, had never met his son that he had had from a previous relationship. The worst kind of life. And Billy calls up Ed, and Ed's explaining the situation. I've, you know, I've got this diagnosis, and da 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 and Billy responds in this thick New York accent. He says, hey, you know what you need to do? It's my New York accent. Um, <laughs> you need to become a Yogi Berra kind of Christian. And Ed, Ed says, what? <laughs> he says, you have to know, like, Billy is a tad off the wall. <laughs> and sometimes he says things that don't, don't make sense. And, and he said, you know, what are you talking about? He said, you need to be a Yogi Berra Christian. He said, it ain't over until it's over. It ain't over till it's over. And Ed said, he said, the reality was that I had given up and I had laid down to die. And if I had done that, I would have missed walking my daughter down the aisle I would have missed the births of all four grandchildren. I would have missed the rest of my life. He says, one day it will be over. And I'm thankful for Ed's sake that he's not in pain anymore. But it was like 15 years in his case. In a diagnosis that began as a two-year death sentence. He says, one day it will be over, but it's not about how long I have left. It's about how I spend the time I do have. And I would say that Billy's phone call was God speaking to me in a New York accent. It ain't over. And some of you today are facing the consequences of your um, um, sin. Some of you are facing the consequences of other people's sin, which in some cases can be even more difficult because it engenders this bitterness and this, this anger and this frustration. Uh, and whether you're facing the consequences of your sin, of your mistakes, of somebody else's mistakes, um, don't assume that this is the end. It isn't, it isn't over. I've talked to people who've 
um, had to face like really serious consequences like um, legal problems or even jail time or, or the threat of all sorts of horrible things. And they say, one of the things that really helped me, like even one of the things that kept me from being suicidal was having other people come to me while I was inside the fish, so to speak, and say, I was right where you are 30 years ago. I was right there. I was facing jail time, I was facing repossession, I was facing divorce, I was facing whatever. I was there, and I'm here to tell you, it's not over yet, right? We've talked about the theology previously, the theology of the semicolon, right? Because a semicolon comes into play grammatically, you're like, oh no. Um, When a sentence could have ended, but it didn't. And for many of you, that's where you are. Like the sentence could end right there, but it doesn't have to. And you need to embrace the theology of the semicolon. You need to stop assuming that getting swallowed up by consequences is the end. It's not the end. It's not over till it's over. Lastly, number four. We're called to begin to see God's discipline as being ultimately for our good. We're called to begin to see God's discipline as being for your good. What's interesting is to notice in the story God's role in Jonah's uh, consequences or in Jonah's punishment. And the verse we didn't read, which immediately precedes chapter 2, actually in the Hebrew Bible, it's the verse It's the first verse in chapter 2 is verse 17 in chapter 1. And I'll just read it. It won't be on the screen. It says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. So God is not just sort of idly standing by. God is actively involved in the discipline of Jonah. But the discipline is not to annihilate him or just to cause him pain. But ultimately, it's for his good. It's to restore him. It's restorative and not merely uh, retributive discipline. It says in the passage, you hurled me into the deep. It says, your waves and breakers swept over me. And what the New Testament teaches is that God is a father. That he's a loving perfect father and while all of us have either had imperfect fathers or are imperfect fathers or both God is a perfect father and it says in the New Testament that that he disciplines those he loves not in this sort of sadistic way because he loves watching us you know struggle or have pain but because he knows that in disciplining us we are sharpened and we are molded into the people that he wants us to be. And so God has a role in Jonah's punishment. But what Jonah um, hopefully begins to see and what we hopefully begin to see is that sometimes God's punishments are provisions in disguise. Sometimes God's punishments are provisions. And I've talked to so many people who would say, you know what the best thing that ever happened to me was? Getting arrested. Because it caused me to hit rock bottom. It caused me to take stock of how I got here. And that direction, not intention, equals destination. And that God's 
punishments ultimately can be provisions. They can be things that bring restoration and not just retribution, that He is involved in, in shaping us. But we can't see that if we blame or deny or become embittered at God's discipline. He's a father and he disciplines those he loves. Um, begin to see God's discipline as being for your good. And so that's the story of Jonah, but it's not a gospel message until we get to Jesus. And I would like for it to be a gospel message um, because the reality is that we don't just need more good advice. We need good news. And so how does the story of Jonah connect to the story of Jesus? There's a pastor by the name of Tim Keller who, who talks about this. And he says it's fascinating that at a couple of key points, the New Testament turns to the story of Jonah and specifically Jonah inside the fish, which is what we're looking for, looking at this week, as a way of highlighting, of, of magnifying the greatness of Christ on at least two occasions. In the Gospel of Mark, it seems that Mark has deliberately laid out one of his stories using language that is parallel or almost identical to the language of the famous story of Jonah. There's a story in Mark. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Both boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm, if you parallel them, are, are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep, oddly, in the midst of what is not a massive boat, in the midst of a massive storm. In both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. And in both cases, there's a miraculous divine intervention, and the sea was calmed. Furthermore, in, in both stories, the sailors left on the boat respond to the calming of the storm by being more terrified than they were <laughs> before the storm was calmed. Terrified at the power that's at work in, in calming a storm. There are two almost identical stories, but there's this one um, seemingly massive difference. Um, in the midst of the storm, Jonah says to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. That's a quote from Jonah. And they threw him into the sea. And Keller says, that, that doesn't happen in the Jesus story. Or does it? He says, I think that Mark is showing that in many ways the stories aren't that different. If we fast forward to the end of the Jesus story, if we look at what Matthew says, Jesus responds to a generation that wants a sign, uh, a generation that's embittered because God is helping the wrong kinds of people by saying this, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it. This is Jesus speaking. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights inside the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days 
and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus compares his death to being inside the fish. He says, the only way for you to live, just what Jonah says, is for me to die. The only way that you can ultimately avoid the consequences, the final consequences of your sins is for me to be swallowed up by them. Jesus is thrown into the ultimate sea, the abyss in the Old Testament from Genesis to Revelation. The sea is the image of chaos and conflict and wrath. And Jesus enters the only sea that can ultimately sink us in his death. If I die, you live. And he teaches us what this means when he, on the night before he's betrayed, takes bread and breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he takes the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. And whenever you receive this, you do so in remembrance of me. I die so that you might live. The sign of Jonah. And so whether you're facing consequences uh, of your actions this week or whether you are just celebrating that Christ endured the penalty on your behalf, we enter in to this time of worship not just with good advice but with good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Jonah and for this lesson of how we can face the consequences of our actions, not with bitterness or denial or blame, but by turning to you, by being honest about how we got here, by not losing hope that this is the end by seeing all of this as ultimately for your good. But Lord, we thank you now, not just for the, the story of Jonah as some sort of object lesson, but for the sign of Jonah. As Jesus said, that the Son of Man was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. That he was swallowed up by the consequences, not of his own sin, but of our sin. And that as we take break and eat and drink that we can celebrate that victory. This doesn't have to be a sort of drive-by guilting, but this can be a time of celebration of the story and also the sign of Jonah, that you conquered death on our behalf. And so Lord, as we come, we worship. We worship the one, as Jesus said, greater than Jonah. One greater than Jonah is here. We thank you for him in your name. Amen.